This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My co-host is JJ Genflone. Hi, everybody. I'm distracted because I found a video of tiny dogs and lions who are best friends. So I don't care about anything else anymore. Self-care is important. (laughs) This is beyond self-care. This is my new lot in life. Unlikely Animal Friends. It's a new TV show I'm starting. Uh, it, It will be playing on the network of my house. And yeah, this is for forget helping people, Seth. I've given up on them. I just want tiny dogs and or tiny other like a tiny animal and a big animal that like mm-hmm. one should be eating the other one, but instead they're best friends. That's that's what I'm into now. Lions and lambs. Exactly. Or in this case, lions and dachshunds. Yeah, I'm watching a, a dachshund and a, and a lion video. And um, I don't care about anything else. So Seth, you have fun giving the topic of this podcast. I'll be here. Watching animal videos. I thought we'd talk about coffee. We both like coffee. Love coffee. Not as much as unlikely animal friends, though, but I love coffee. I did my internship for my master's degree, which I got in human rights a couple years ago. I did my internship at Verite, where I studied coffee. And uh, I'm going to talk about coffee today. Coffee and migration. Or specifically how the coffee crisis in 2001 led to emigration from southern Mexico Mm -hmm. to the United States and how the U.S. contributed to that happening. So part of why that's relevant is uh, the United States, the State Department, confirmed their withdrawal from the International Coffee Agreement, which is a treaty that involves the International Coffee Organization. As you may already know, uh, President Donald Trump is not very fond of treaties, has pulled out of a few, and so people at the State Department and uh, President Trump decided to pull out of this one. So the membership of the International Coffee Organization and the agreement includes every major coffee-producing country. It previously imposed export quotas that were designed to stabilize the global coffee market, Uh, There was a bit of a cartel going on way back with uh, Brazil and Colombia vying for production. And Brazil sets the pace of the market because they are a very large coffee producer as well as being a very large country in terms of landmass. And uh, in 1989, there was a dispute with negotiations uh, as things were changing and as countries like Colombia were were cheating on the agreement. And so it didn't really come together and the U.S. pulled out of the International Coffee Agreement in 1989. The U.S. didn't stay uninvolved in conversations, but it wasn't until 2005 under George W. Bush that the U.S. rejoined as a full member. In the midst of that, there was a coffee crisis around 2001, which I'll get to a little later. So at this point, the State Department has decided that uh, this isn't worth it to stay involved and have a voice in the International Coffee Agreement, although they want to stay involved in some other ways. But when the U.S. decides to not have a voice in being a large coffee consumption market, the U.S. voice matters. It sends a signal And uh, in 1989, that signal was one of the factors that led to a destabilized market. At this point, coffee prices are at a low. 
They're lower than they've been in a, in a while. That is affecting certain parts of the country like Central America. In fact, Guatemala and Western Honduras are coffee-producing areas. And you know what? Some of those people are producing coffee below the cost of production, which means it's not worth it. So some of them are deciding to leave and try to come to other places like the United States. So this is a very relevant topic. Yeah. So I maybe mean, I'll just break in really quickly and do like a little ecom 101 for those of you who out there who who don't really do like import export stuff. When there are quotas on on import, it says how much that say in this case the US can buy from foreign countries to bring in of a particular product, say coffee, export, same deal, how much they can send out. When you have prices drop to the point for exporters that they're not actually going to get back to cover what would they would spend on, say, farming, on, on rendering, on production, on like maybe roasting beans or drying beans or what have you, and it actually makes more sense for them to let their fields lay fallow, that doesn't mean that they're still getting a gain as farmers. In fact, what that means is that now they just have a, a pure loss because they have a crop that they've spent a lot of time and money into cultivating perhaps even into picking, and now they don't have a market to sell it. And so it's just lying fallow, and it's not like they can just sort of shore it up and, and sell it again next year. There's no guarantee that the market will ever return or that they'll ever be able to sell this. And in the meantime, they don't have any incoming money to plant the crop for the next year. So they're 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 doubly hurting. So it's essentially in, in the course of a year, their entire industry of, of survival can die. And that's then what leads people to travel and to be what is sometimes defined as an economic migrant, but I think increasingly should it should be just be defined maybe as an economic refugee because they no longer have the ability to make enough money to feed themselves in, in their country of origin, if you will. Right. And then looking at that, there's understanding a person's plight, and then there's what happens when they get to the border. Yeah. Part of what we want to get across is understanding the plight of people. That doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. has to take them in, but... It does mean we shouldn't demonize them. Yes. So some of what happens and what has happened in Guatemala, Verite has a public report where they did research in Guatemala coffee and found indicators of forced labor. Now, when I say indicators of forced labor, that means uh, different factors such as getting paid less than minimum wage when they're supposed to get minimum wage, having your documents like your passport taken that one of these things may not be trafficking, but if you look at multiple factors together, yeah, it means they it's all probably a forced labor situation. And when the coffee producers, who are the people who own the farms, are paying laborers who don't own the farms, and when coffee prices are low, it makes it more likely that the laborers will get less money than they're supposed to get which can make it a trafficking situation. So this can have a domino effect. It also means that that's one of the ways that this is relevant to trafficking, as well as migration flows and the fact that there is a complexity of dominoes that can fall. Yeah. That this stuff just isn't simple when you get economics involved and when you start talking about treaties and pulling out of treaties. So I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time using Mexico as the case study here. I have a lot of data about coffee in Mexico and what happened from the late 80s until the coffee crisis. Seth the coffee king. So one of the things to understand yes. 
with Mexico is Mexico produces most of their coffee in the south, and those areas tend to be mountainous, have poor communication. Around 80% of those communities are where coffee has been the primary agricultural activity, and there's quite a lot of poverty. Uh, those regions also tend to be fairly indigenous, which means they don't necessarily speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. So to go back in time to the 40s and 50s, the Mexican government was involved in managing coffee. That can be good and bad when the government's involved, depending on where you're on in the spectrum. But practically speaking, it can be good and bad, and there are ways that it was good. But uh, Inma Cafe was created in 1958 to regulate coffee prices, provide technical assistance, and conduct research to improve production and to also control pests. Government was involved throughout the 70s, and uh, this served multiple purposes, including to reduce poverty and social unrest because keeping things somewhat stable. Mexico was also fairly protectionist during this time, which also can be a mixed bag, but uh, that also meant that at least with their very poor farmers who had very little leverage and very little social flexibility to change their livelihoods, or at least didn't want to, as people in rural areas can get really set in doing things a certain way. And that becomes, I mean, if they've been doing it for one or two generations, I mean, farmers in southern Mexico in some ways are like farmers in the United States. They no, it, like it, their way of life. And, it, and it's typically like a family thing. It's a traditional thing. So if, if it's worked for multiple generations, why change now? Yeah. So I, I'm in no way disparaging that. I'm, I'm trying to draw the corollary to say, there's some similarities between people in rural areas here and rural areas in other countries where people like oh. their life and they don't want it to change a lot. Makes sense. So things started getting harder in the 80s, and that was because of a debt crisis. So around 1982, they were in danger of defaulting. Now that gets us to the question, why were they in a position where they were in danger of defaulting? Well, to uh, step to another narrative for, for a moment, there's a lot of things that go into the developing country debt crisis of the early 80s and why they were in debt. There are some people like uh, John Perkins of Confessions of an Economic Hitman who has his narrative and conspiracy theory, as far he's more on the left, of how intentional it was and how, among other things, like after we pulled off the gold standard, how... We go and we do this arrangement with Saudi Arabia. They produce oil and they upgrade their infrastructure. And one of the key parts of that, regardless of intent, was a lot of oil money went into Western banks. Yeah. Now, it wasn't the only money in Western banks, but it was a lot of money. And what's important, what's factual, is there was a lot of money in banks that they then had to do something with because banks just don't seem to want to leave money doing nothing. So... There were lots of banks and later international institutions like the World Bank and so on, but lots of banks that decided we need to invest this money yeah. in projects. And so you had a lot of people in a few notable organizations that went around and did these quotes to developing countries for dams and roads and, and would give projections on what would happen in terms of growth. Some of those projections were just 
really questionable. Many of them didn't come to be. And this is where you can question the intent of people. But I'm going to put that aside because that's really not important for the narrative other than they were given a bunch of debt and it didn't live up to its billing. And some of these projects weren't built as well as they should be or they weren't maintained as well as they should be. This also gets into the situation of who's responsible for debt. If a dictator takes on debt, it maybe puts it in a Swiss bank account. Yeah, then the state is responsible for the for state is responsible. At some point. And uh, that's considered something called odious debt. But the mechanisms to deal with debt, like they're, they're really, it's hard for a state to do away with debt. So if even a well-meaning president of a country takes on debt in their government, that if the project doesn't do what it says, they still have that debt. And then they end up getting loans to pay on that debt. And in the 80s, a lot of that happened is you had countries couldn't pay. And so you had to have people come along and say, well, you know, well, if you follow these policies, prescriptions, then we'll come up with this arrangement and you can pay interest on the debt and get another loan to pay on the debt and all this other stuff. This is also where the age of structural adjustment came into play, which is largely a set of policy prescriptions for liberalization. Which comes out of debt churning itself. Mm -hmm. With liberalization, the biggest problem with it is it's often also called the Washington consensus because it was something that some guy came up with that was then applied in a cookie-cutter way to many countries. But countries around the world, in order to work with the IMF, who was the lender of last resort, and also with the World Bank, World Bank has lent out tons more than the IMF, in case you didn't know that, that countries had to follow these principles, which were to liberalize, have more free market, have less government support, have less government programs, and it's a very mixed bag. Not all of them had the institutions to deal with it. Liberalization can be disruptive. You want to look for an example? Look at the United States, where a lot of people are unhappy about jobs leaving, but that's just part of liberalization. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Bill Clinton. I was going to say, yeah, Sierra, thanks, Obama Podcast, for actual thoughts on that. But, yeah, it's actually something that starts in the mid-90s. Really under, under, I would say, Bush Sr. and then Clinton. It's both of them equally. So this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. This is actually just sort of a world neocon (laughs) consideration. Right. And neoliberalism, as it's called, which is still based on a liberal order, shared rules, there are legitimate criticisms of it, but it's not all or nothing. It's not all good or bad. It's very mixed. Yes. So how did that impact Mexico? Well, they started the process of liberalization. So they joined GATT in 1986, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. In 87, U.S. and Mexico entered a bilateral trade agreement called the Framework of Principles and Procedures for Consultation Regarding Trade and Investment Relations. Glad we didn't keep that name. I was going to say, that's that's such a snappy, sexy name. Just rolls right off the tongue. That was really the first major trade agreement between the two countries. 1989, they came up with the Understanding Regarding Trade and Investment Facilitation Talks. As I've already mentioned, in 1989, the U.S. pulled out of the International Coffee Agreement. The other thing that happened in the 80s, starting in 1986, 
is Vietnam would start a state-driven initiative to grow their coffee production significantly, which also comes into play a bit later. So what's happening in Mexico is you have them liberalizing. You have the U.S. pulling out of the ICA, and uh, Inma Cafe was still doing some management, but uh, it was dismantled in 1993. There are other programs that the Mexican government developed, but there was less overall support after 1993. So there was more foreign investment, which was helpful in some ways, but it also destabilized some of the existing coffee organizations. But then, by 1994, there was a decrease in the inflows of foreign direct investment, and it happened that they went from a fixed exchange rate policy to a floating exchange rate regime, which is also something that happened with uh, structural adjustment. And when that happened, Mexico's currency, their peso, plunged by around 50% within six months, sending them into a recession. So their currency was devalued, there was capital flight, and interest rates rose up to 90%. So multiple things happening. Other things happening at the same time, the birth of cooperatives, which was to give them leverage. The cooperative movement, if you've heard of fair trade, cooperatives uh, largely came out of Mexico with SEPCO and ISMAM. So the movement was so that they would have more buying leverage was the main reason. And is that like the main reason people would enter into Because I know very little about cooperatives. Would that be like the main reason to enter into a cooperative is just so you have more buying power? Yeah, you'd have more leverage in the market. So instead, so, you, so you, especially you have all these really small farmers in mountainous regions, and they can all come together, pay some dues, and and then actually have some cooperative. Yeah. Buy things they may need. They might be able to share some resources, and they could go and have more leverage in the market. Because when you're working with uh, coyotes, which aren't necessarily bad people, they're they're the intermediaries and. But especially back in this time where you had less access to information than you do in the information age, it's harder to know what's going on. And so cooperatives were just a way to work together. So then we have NAFTA. I'm sure you all have heard of NAFTA. So in case you didn't know, NAFTA, there were different things that could be exchanged. And uh, NAFTA was displacing to the agricultural sector in Mexico. And it allowed more U.S. corn into Mexico. And one of the things we probably know about U.S. corn is it's subsidized. Yeah, heavily. And in South Mexico, their two primary crops are coffee and corn, sometimes on the same farms. Your two C's. The two C's. All you need in life, really. And the policy reforms that uh, Mexico is making uh, removed price supports and subsidies eliminated some state enterprises that supported agriculture, and created more competition. So you're removing supports that people have depended on. You're bringing in corn, which competes with southern Mexico. You've had these other things that have happened. And so the poorest regions that already experience some discrimination because they're indigenous rather than Latino, and, and because they're poor, they're highly affected. But to go back in time for context, in the early 80s, 44% of coffee municipalities, up to 15% of their agricultural area was for coffee. 
and up to 35% was dedicated to corn. So not surprisingly, after NAFTA, Mexican prices of, of crops such as corn dropped. So the three southern states that had the highest poverty rates in the country pretty consistently are Guerrero, Oaxaca, and Chiapas. All coffee regions, especially the last two. So in 1997, the uh, farm price, or the gate price for coffee was around, it was as low as a dollar per pound and as high as 180 a pound. And then it went on a pretty slow descent. 98, it was a dollar, 2000, beginning it was 80 cents. And by 2001, it dropped to below 50 cents a pound. Oh, wow. Which was below the cost of production. Fair trade, the fair trade movement, happened around this time. And that's why, because people who had the, the these ways of life suddenly... Yeah, didn't have a way to make a living anymore. Didn't have a way to make a living where it wasn't even worth it, and that was causing loss of disruption. And then that has ripple effects out to the whole community. If you've got a community that's predicated on the fact that you've got coffee farmers who can spend money every mm-hmm. year at, at your food stalls, at your restaurants, at your sending kids to school for school fees, mm-hmm. buy clothes, pay rent... Now, I've read uh, libertarian arguments against fair trade, <laughs> and fair trade is also a mixed bag. Yeah. but And we've talked about that. We yeah. have a podcast about it, specifically. <laughs> but fair trade is a price floor. That's not the only thing it is, and that can distort a market if people who shouldn't be in the market are producing coffee. But it takes a few years to grow coffee tree. They only last so long. You know, It's not an overnight change to change your entire livelihood, but there are people that do that. There are farmers that have done that, so it's it's doable. But you might have to change your crop or your way of life in order to do that. In any case, this is part of what fair trade was trying to address, to have a price that was well above that so that people could survive. So part of the International Coffee Organization not having the leverage because the U.S. pulled out and things just fell apart is there was just less oversight worldwide in this market. Prices for commodity coffee, which is what most coffee is, are set not by the buyers and sellers, but in the futures market in in places like New York City. Which is crazy to me because you're, you're, you're playing with money that doesn't exist yet on the possibility of something that might happen in the future. And that just involves way too much math for me to be able to do properly. Yeah, I still don't fully get that market. So yeah, so then you have people who can't recover their production costs, so what do they do? Having set the stage, I'm going to look at this from two different angles, and that's what did people do in these two locales. So one set of reports looked at migration from... And this is still being defined now as economic migration, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's people traveling... For the purposes of ideally making money, but I don't, I, I really don't like that term. I have a number of issues with that term because I don't think it encapsulates everything that's going on in the situation accurately. It's survival. Yeah, it's, it's, it's survival migration. Right. It's not just trying to better one's life. It's trying to actually live. So in looking at one report from uh, Chiapas, you look at out-migration or emigration from Chiapas. 95 to 99 to 2000 to 2001, negligible. Mm -hmm. It starts shooting up from uh, 
2000 and 2001, beginning of the the uh, worst part of the coffee crisis, to 2002, where it jumps up to almost 40,000, 2003, where it goes up to about 58,000, 2004, drops back down to about 37,000, jumps back up to 60,000 in 2005, and then almost doubles in 2006. Note we are still in the uh, George W. Bush regime at this point. So until the coffee crisis, people from the main coffee-producing region were not leaving. But we're not stopping there. Well, and then these things too, like I think for for people who aren't familiar with, again, like to do like economics 101, is that generally like after an economic downturn, like there's a ripple effect for about four to five years too after as industries are like trying to recover or people are, are, are moving away from working in a particular sector because maybe you survived the worst of it that year, but the second year you just can't get the capital together to keep functioning. Mm-hmm. So uh, the emigration didn't just go to the United States. So Looking at it in 1970, the number of people from Chiapas was 90,000 in other Mexican states. It jumped up 30 years later to 336,000 rate before the worst part of the coffee crisis. And the coffee crisis did not end overnight. Yeah, that's why these timelines are always weird because it's like it ended. and No, it didn't. Like... And uh, we're, we're going to link to these reports if you want to look at them. But it also shows, like, again, you look at 2000 and you have all these people from Oaxaca and Veracruz and other southern state and Tabasco, it's the name of a state, that left in 2000 that weren't leaving before. Yeah. We've said it before. We'll say it again. Not everyone wants to leave. Yeah, and not everyone wants from. to come to the United States if they don't have better options. Other people like their cultures too. And, it, and moving, it's expensive. It's frightening. You're leaving support networks. You're leaving culture. You're you're leaving an area where you know you've had success in the past, sector-specific success in the past. Going back in time a little bit, from 1942 to 1964, approximately 4.5 million Mexican laborers worked in the U.S. as braceros in the bracero program. They were primarily from Guanajuato, Jalisco, Michoacan, and Zacatecas. Taking Spanish, I should be better at pronouncing it. But hey, I can't help you. I got nothing but Mandarin and English, bud. (laughs) None of those sounds transfer over. There is very little GFN labor, like 0.02%. So between 1990 and 2000, the uh, GFS population in the U.S. increased at a 2.2% rate, but still not really high. And if you're out there listening and you're not seeing sort of where trafficking fits into that, just just picture when you have a local economy that gets decimated and now suddenly you have people moving and, and moving sort of transnationally. Think of all the vulnerabilities that are present there. Think of all the opportunities for a trafficker to come in. Think of all the financial needs that may lead someone to take a job in a sector that they're unfamiliar with, with or a country they're unfamiliar with with rules they might not be familiar with. As Seth pointed out, all the arrangements they might have to make with coyotes to enter the country. It, it's a lot. There's a lot now of vulnerability that previously isn't there. Or wasn't there, rather. So a few other related 
factors with Chiapas. Uh, coffee, which was their most important crop, provided income for nearly 25% of its working population of 500 la laborers. And 33% of Mexico's coffee was grown in Chiapas in 1997. So it's a big deal if it affects Chiapas. And according to Oxfam, in 2001, the coffee crisis caused 500 families per week, both farmers and laborers, to leave Chiapas to either go to other states in Mexico or, or try to emigrate to the United States. So it's like it's like the Dust Bowl of, of Mexico. So, but instead of crop failure, it's coffee failure. Mm -hmm. Or coffee market failure, rather. It was mostly that. And then there was some uh, social unrest and armed conflict because of the Zapatista uprising. And, uh, but that was impacted in some ways by like the failing economy, right? There's going to be some relationship. I don't know the entire history of drugs and cartels either, but... There's overlap. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to look at it shortly from the other direction, which is the United States direction. But part of the challenge with globalization and liberalization of agricultural economies is while there's a lot of poverty, there can be a degree of self-sufficiency in some of these areas with their traditional ways of life. I don't want to make it overly noble, but the modern economy requires certain types of work factories and, and other things, which can be disruptive, which can disrupt ways of life. That's just part of what happens. And then when things dry up, and then when you don't have the government supports because liberalization wants to remove government supports because, you know, socialism bad, and my point isn't whether socialism is good or bad, but we've had socialist programs in the United States for a long time. There is an impact to removing those social supports. Yeah. And when we say other countries need to do that. And so what happens is all these things come together and people are at the mercy of the, quote, free market, which isn't really a free market when prices are being set a year in advance in New York City. Yeah. Then what are people going to do? Leave. To a place where they actually can survive or make enough money to survive, rather. So I only showed one set of data, which wasn't conclusive on what was happening. But then there's some other research from the Department of Labor's National Agricultural Workers Survey, where they actually survey workers and where they're from in, Mex in uh, California. Okay. From Mexico. Lo and behold... The percent of South Mexicans among U.S. farm workers, there is a increase in percentage pretty slowly at start from there was a, it was around 10 uh, percent when NAFTA first started, went up to about 12 percent, 99, went up to 20 percent when the coffee crisis hit, and then it went up to about 30 percent. So there, there was a over 10% jump just at the beginning of the coffee price, crisis. They also have other data, which includes where are they from, and uh, specifically indigenous. Now, now, one of the things that we too often get wrong 
like, you know, like when you listen to people say, oh, yeah, the, these Mexicans and these Mexicans crossing the border when Mexicans yeah. haven't really crossed the border much for a while. Very small proportion of immigration flow right now. Back at this time, the people coming here, that, that increase from southern Mexico were not Spanish speakers. They were indigenous language speakers. And the percent distribution of adult indigenous farm workers from Mexico by state of origin, over 80% of them are from Oaxaca, one of the primary coffee-growing regions. So coffee goes down, foreign workers go up. Foreign workers specifically from South Mexico, well, from yeah, the coffee-growing fr- region where, where the coffee goes down. And the people that are going to work in farm work in California are going to be people who know how to do farm work. Yeah. That's that's sort of their sector of, of industry that they've mm-hmm. worked in before. Because, like, farm work does require skill. Like, I think people seem to yeah. think of it as an unskilled labor position, but, like, you, ha- you have to know what you're doing mm-hmm. in, in modern farm work. And so along with the fact that they were indigenous, they also confirmed that their primary languages were also indigenous language, like uh, Mixteco and Zapoteco. And then there's another chart in, that I'm going to link to, Birthplace of California Farm Workers of Mexican Origin 2003-2004. Lo and behold, it's places like Wakaka. Yeah. So pretty simply, you look at Emigration from southern Mexico, and you look at the farm worker population in the United States, and they correlate. So the coffee crisis led to emigration to the United States. The data is pretty clear. Yeah. And the U.S. pulling out of the coffee agreement and, and just the world having less leadership Shit. and paying less attention to the coffee market – and at a time when coffee consumption is yeah. going up. <laughs> and one of the biggest factors in the coffee crisis was overproduction. Vietnam got into the act mm-hmm. and they significantly overproduced. Coffee prices dropped. So pulling out of the agreement now when coffee prices are already going down yeah. is um, possibly phenomenally stupid. Especially if we want less immigrants to come to the United States from places with coffee markets that are struggling, namely Honduras and Guatemala. Yeah. And whereas the economy continues to drop, crime continues to rise, which then leads, leads to people wanting to migrate for safety purposes, not just economic purposes. Yes. There's multiple factors, including the gangs and what they charge for protection or extortion. Mm -hmm. Well, and that just makes the cost of doing business even Mm -hmm. higher. Yeah. So so coffee is a big deal for Guatemala and Western Honduras. Uh, Places like Starbucks are looking more Southeast Asia. They're on record as saying that because of... Mm -hmm. So we're helping create the problem the Trump administration is creating is making, a problem that it's fighting it, against. Yes. 
that this isn't debatable. That's what's happening. Yeah. We're snake eats tail in this situation yeah. here. I, and I think that's interesting because similar arguments have popped up with sort of the ongoing now trade war that Trump has essentially declared with China by by the changing of tariff agreements. With that, is this then going to increase immigration within Southeast Asia between countries as people fight for work, but then in turn lead to even more sort of East Asian, Southeast Asian more broadly uh, immigration to the U.S. as well for other economic opportunities and the chances possibly – but is then sort of Mike Pence's claims of, of pulling back then like student visas and other forms of visas specifically for Chinese students, is that going to have an impact? So could we possibly be looking at immigration flows brought on by trade war in, on two continents simultaneously or more? Is this a good time to cash in on, on my dual citizenship with Italy? Is this a good time, Seth? I don't should know. I, should I head for the hills? I mean, they've got their own issues, but should I run? Despite what populist rhetoric says... The U.S. economy and the world economy are complicated. <laughs> there, there are so many it's ways hard. you could have gone right. with that. I'm so impressed you just went with economy. <laughs> no, there, there's so so many ways that there can be domino effects. Every U.S. administration finds that over something important. Yeah. And unless the Northern Triangle finds ways to stabilize and have more rule of law, and have a better economy, people aren't going to stay. And behave like adults with one another? There's, 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 there's one podcast I listened to where when she was interviewing some people that were in a small group, like not the main caravan, but another one, and they're like, yeah, we, we like that the U.S. has rule of law. Yeah, uh, uh, shockingly, people seem to enjoy that and not getting murdered in their beds for the most part. In the U.S., although our, our rise of mass violence has made it fundamentally feel unsafer, but you know, that's a topic <sighs> that's for another a side, time. That's a side but... issue. Yeah, and as as we continue to see the caravan make its progress into the U.S. and continue to see sort of rhetoric being uh, pushed against the members of that caravan and George Soros and various mem- other members of the public, uh, please just just keep in mind that there there are complicated reasons and domino effects that impact everything that happens sort of in the international world, and that so many of these things relate back to human trafficking. So even something that on the surface you think coffee, maybe the only thing you think of that can be human trafficking related is, is the use of maybe labor, you know, forced labor in a human trafficking context. That's not the case. It, it spills out in other ways. So... Keep that in mind when you're buying your next beverage. Keep that in mind the next time you turn on the news. And and keep the faith, guys. And have a good cup of coffee. Yeah. Bye, okay. everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.